1: What I like to call act two, but we can call it part two of the um, this special episode on um, now sexual assault, so I first want to just welcome my anchor my support uh, Mary to Pippi hi Mary
0: hi Andrew. So Mary
1: you? and I go back. I think no, I know I brought up Mary before, so the listeners should know who you might know who Mary is. But we've known each other since we were in elementary school from a summer theater camp. So we are Jerseyans uh, together. Yep. Um, <laughs> so the
2: ger-
1: yes, yes, <laughs> and um, only we can say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but. It's wonderful to have you here just I think because Mary and I work so much on our writing together and we know each other personally and we've now opened up in terms of our creative process and um, our experiences with uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault have come to the surface or at least that's how I feel that Mm -hmm. I've recently been revisiting what happened to me um, in 20, I've been trying to process this together this week. So um, it happened in, I wanna say 2016, um, and it was in the fall of 2016, I'm pretty sure October. Um, And that'll become more important in terms of being a PhD student and what I was going through. Um, at that time, but, um, you know, first, Mary and I actually had watched Promising Young Woman together, Mm -hmm. and it was a film that we decided to do a talk back with for the writing group, and sometimes in the writing group, we have books that we'll read together or films we want to discuss, so Promising Young Woman, I had been seeing it, uh, the trailers, I was really captivated it's seen the subversion of women being preyed on and um, by men and that like this female lead uh, was going to take back her voice and was going to turn the tables on these men. And it sort of has this revenge narrative, but there's a lot more complexity when you actually watch it that I um still am um, deeply troubled not by not troubled by the performances troubled just by there is no clear answer at the end of exactly what justice looks like and I think that's what I'm having the hardest part with in that film is it feels very powerful right and I I'll ask mm-hmm. you Mary I mean, What emotion do you still recall from just Promising Young Woman?
0: I mean, like, it still, like, haunts me. And, like, not, like, in, like, a bad way, so to speak, but more of, like, I mean, the ending was just so, like, you just wanted her to have, for me anyway, like, I wanted there to be this very definite, clear justice happening for her and... people involved and it's not so much light I mean there kind of is some justice but again like you said like it gets tricky because you go what is justice like you understand that something there is a sort of like a resolve to it but it's not necessarily the resolve you want and it's not the resolve you feel like Carrie Mulligan's character or, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the other characters in the film should have.
1: Um, Emerald Fennell, the director and uh, Carrie Mulligan have been doing a lot of interviews and um, we're including here in the sexual assault resources, a lot of articles about promising young women and Emerald Fennell actually had um, done some directing with Killing Eve. So like, it kind of makes Mm -hmm. sense The direction that Promising Young Woman goes just from this female-centered creative team um, centering their narratives of assault um, but I'm still struck by during my walks I will sometimes listen to the uh, soundtrack Um, Mm -hmm. and I and the director Emerald Fennell talks about how the soundtrack is its own text separate from the film and I agree it's right? It kind of, it ties into recovering from trauma, but also how it's, it disrupts your psyche, or at least that's how I'm starting to read the music, as Mm -hmm. there's a lot of women objectified in these songs, but then sometimes, like, it's actually all women who sing, too, in the soundtrack, which is very unique. I love that. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a very complicated mix. So if you've never seen Promising Young Woman, Mary and I are just giving you a warning that um, it is definitely not just a popcorn watching uh, it's escapist, it's, it's not Bridgerton. Um, <laughs> and I mean, yeah, there's some problematic elements you might find in Bridgerton with, um, especially the sexual encounters uh, between the leads, but you know, Promising Young Woman is um, I guess what you would call a social p- problem film in like the traditional genre, but um, yeah. that it really dissects us all. And right. yeah, and it's it doesn't give you exactly what you think restorative justice might look like. And yeah. So on that,
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, we're using, and I think we're using this as a way to just get into our own narratives because
2: mm-hmm.
1: I know for myself, I really approach my own story through art and media, like trying to process just how I started to phrase what happened to me. And as we're recording this, I had just, I just started therapy um, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, exactly. I started therapy. Thank you, Mary. Um, and the first session went really well. Um, and it's brought up a lot from my childhood, which isn't surprising because that's usually where the therapy heads first, um, by, um, very Freudian. Um, I don't have though a Freud, Freudian therapist. <laughs> I don't think they exist now. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's really unearthed. Oh, okay. I've actually been dealing with sexual assault since I was a child. Like, so what happened to me during the PhD program is one incident of me having been traumatized two other times in elementary school. So like, this is something that I have feel like I've just continued to keep going and not really Mm -hmm. ever sitting down and talking through it with a licensed therapist to like, Admit that, oh, this has psychologically impacted me. And I always turn to literature to escape from it. So for me, the library, literature, even my studies is all part of me piecing together the trauma, but also, you know, um, accepting myself as being gay. Like all of this is really part of, there's a lot of layers. And Mm -hmm there is no one narrative. And I just realized there is no one way to explain everything because it's so, even I'll explain foggy just when I talk with you, Mary, about Mm -hmm. what what has happened to me in the past, um, a few years ago. But let me have you, um, if you're comfortable.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, What
1: you're processing right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, so for, basically what I wanted to talk about, not necessarily sexual abuse, but verbal and emotional abuse, especially within you know, romantic relationships. Um, when I first started, um, I had gone to college for dance first when I graduated high school and then didn't wanna do that and then did hair and then decided again that I was gonna go back to college. Um, so I enrolled in a community college um, I wanted to get a degree in psychology, just because I'd always been interested in psychology and how the brain works and functions and how certain life events affect the brain and all that stuff. So I was in school for that. And I was also in this relationship that it started out great. But sadly, he suffered a huge traumatic loss in his life. One of his family members had passed. And that really, whether it, cre- and this is something I'm still trying to figure out, whether it created the shift to like our downfall, essentially, in our relationship, or if it was always this way, and I was just kind of more like oblivious to it. Mm. Um, and it was just something that because of this event, you know, this loss, it got worse.
2: Mm.
0: So what happened essentially, you know, he suffered this traumatic loss and it was hard, you know, trying to help him get through it and, you know, trying to process it. Um, Of course, at the time we were in our early twenties and drinking all the time. And as most people know, alcohol is a depressant. So the sadness and depression he was already feeling was being compounded and made worse. And You know, he became very verbally and emotionally abusive. And because I knew he had suffered such a great loss, I kept trying to make excuses for him. And in my head, whether it was in my head or to other people, just to be like, well, you know, he suffered this. So, you know, he's angry he's upset about this. He's not necessarily mad at me, you know, but you can only talk yourself into that so much before It really starts weighing on you and i could just feel this this complete change in me where i felt like i was becoming slightly neurotic because i wasn't feeling appreciated i wasn't feeling like i was someone he loved or cared about anymore i was just the crutch to lean on or the punching bag you know for his you know unfigured out you know traumatic emotions that he was experiencing and it's just spiraled horribly I mean there was an incident with a weapon where he held a gun to his head because I had cleaned the house like that week before and he had gotten a ticket and I put the ticket inside of where he kept his gun holder and you know of course he was like you know the safety was on the safety was on but I went from being someone who thought like oh shooting guns is cool like going to a range and shooting guns is cool you know Mm -hmm. thinking that you know as long as you know what you're doing you know not saying that i'm like oh yeah like second amendment you know like i think there's a responsible way to have guns but to have that experience to see the person you truly care about the most put themselves in that situation. And it's not like he was across the room. He was sitting right next to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean, it was just traumatizing beyond anything I think I had ever experienced. At-
1: Mary wanted to add the following section to explain how she was processing the trauma in the moment, not fully realizing the psychological toll that had just occurred from her watching her ex-boyfriend put the gun to his head. So I'm adding this section and Mary wanted us to hear her thoughts and what she did right after this happened. And now how she looks back at that moment and has analyzed it. It's really powerful and it was really important to make sure Mary included This section for all of you to hear.
0: So after my ex-boyfriend held the gun to his head, uh, the first thing that I did, just because I really didn't know what to do, was go to Wawa and buy myself a pack of cigarettes, which I had been trying to quit and actually had been doing really well quitting. But when that happened, I mean, I was traumatized, you know? So I really didn't know what else to do. And he also hated that I smoked. just, like, felt like I was getting back at him in some way by doing that. But, you know, of course, so I went, came back, smoked, like, a cigarette or two. chain smoked a cigarette or two, I should say. And then went back in the house, and everyone who was still there was just sitting in complete silence. So, like, I don't know what he talked about with them. I don't know if he apologized to them. I really don't know what happened. They were just all sitting there quietly and... He looks up to me and he apologized, which I appreciated, obviously. But then I can't remember exactly what he said, but I just remember whatever it was that he said just totally undermined the apology and basically just as if the apology never happened. So what I did was I grabbed his gun and I went down in the basement and I just sobbed for a good, I don't even know how long maybe five, 10 minutes, I don't, but just con- constant sobbing. And I don't remember if I texted the friend of a friend or if I texted my one friend who's gun savvy directly. Um, but anyway, I had him come downstairs and he completely unloaded the gun for me, took the um, casing out, you know, check the chamber, made sure there was nothing in there, you know, and I actually was like, I'm sorry. Which, at the time, I was like... And still kind of like, that's crazy. Why are you sorry? Like, this also happened to you. Like, you also witnessed your friend, my boyfriend at the time, do something literally insane. And life-threatening. So, you know. Anyway. um, So, yeah. I cried for a little bit longer. And eventually, I just got so angry. And I felt out of my mind. Like insane out of my mind. And I took the completely unloaded gun upstairs. And luckily everyone pretty much had left at this time. There's maybe one person there. Um and essentially what I did was I did what he did to me. So I put the unloaded gun in my head and I actually like pulled the trigger a few times and was just like, do you not understand how this feels? Because like I said, I just I was so traumatized and felt so Gaslit for being traumatized, that I just felt myself spiraling and really just didn't know what else to do to get him to understand how hurt and traumatized I had felt, and how by his gaslighting, only made it worse. And yeah, I mean, it was extremely traumatizing. And I mean, like I said, the best way I can describe the way that I was feeling was that I literally felt out of my mind, insane. Like, that I was just spiraling and did not know fully how to control my actions. And, you know, I I just hope that, you know, if there's anyone out there listening who is in this situation can understand that what you're feeling in that moment, that's completely normal. There's nothing wrong with the way that you're feeling because you are being traumatized. And being gaslit on top of being traumatized does not help anything. It makes it a lot worse that time and it just like I said it just got completely worse from there and one thing I do want to point out is that there were so many times like you would have thought like okay that she should leave like that's that's the moment she's gonna leave she's done she has to be done with this like and you just you don't think that because you're so like when they say love is blind they truly mean that But also when you're experiencing trauma and just the repercussions of verbal and emotional abuse from having feeling, you know, like I said, feeling just unappreciated and feeling like you're not doing enough and that you aren't enough for this person because that's what they keep, whether they tell you that outright or what my ex did was hint at it a lot and, you know. Just calling me names, saying mean things, stuff like that, you know, you really aren't in the right headspace to go, okay, I'm going to leave. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it is so hard for victims of domestic violence, uh, you know, verbal, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, why it's so hard to leave. It's not that you don't think you should leave or that you're not entertaining the idea of leaving. It's just, you feel like I know, like you just feel paralyzed. I feel like you can't do anything and that leaving isn't the right answer. In some Mm -hmm. instances, I even tried to convince myself, oh, it's gonna get better. It's fine. We just, we have to get through this. You know, he has to deal with this loss. And once he deals with this loss, it's gonna be fine. But that's not always the case. And especially when you have your best friends telling you like best friends who knew him before like that was how we met through mutual friends when they're telling you stop making these excuses for him it's you know not trying to say like you shouldn't be grieving but just like stop using that as in the excuse for why he's treating you this way because even though he is going through this horrible horrible loss and grieving process that still is an excuse for him to treat you like shit. Mm -hmm. So, and at the time, like I said, I was trying to get my bachelor's and trying to work on doing school online, which was something I had never done before. Um, It just, it totally crushed me. I mean, I had no desire to go back to school after, after that semester when all of that occurred because I personally wasn't feeling like I was good enough or that I was good enough to do or to pursue this psychology degree or do anything in the psychological field because of not only because of what I went through and how I handled it, but just, again, the repercussions of someone constantly feeding you this false information that you're not smart, you're not going to get this done, you procrastinate, you do this too much, you're too this, you're too that, you know, and it's taken me a really, I mean, there's some times where I still have to process things, like with my current relationship, which I'm very thankful for my current relationship. Um, he is a little bit more on the sarcastic side, but he reads me very well, and he'll know when I'm taking something too personally, and will sit me, I'm like, hey, look, just like reassure me, like, hey, I'm not, I don't mean it, I'm just joking around because of this one particular instance, and." you know, like, and just the fact that I actually have support from him from like my work and stuff like that. Like, it's, it's nice. But you know, like I said, there are still some things that I have to work out with myself just because of this relationship, but also like, you know, just trying to retrain your brain to think nice things about yourself again. Because when, like I said, when you have that, it's hard to let go of those negative thoughts. Especially when the relationship failed. So, again, like I said, you know, if anyone is in that type of situation and you're stuck trying to leave or don't know how to leave or can't figure it out, find friends, find su- some sort of support that can help get you back to that person who you were. Even if you're still in that relationship, you need to have some sort of strength and I think confidence boosted to some extent in order to actually be able to do the right thing for yourself. So, and don't feel bad about not leaving or thinking you should have left sooner, you know, it's not your fault. It's really, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, it's just, it's not your fault. It's the other person's fault. And it's not your fault for not being able to leave. You will get there.
1: Well, thank you, Mary you know saying all of that and also um it it's really speaking to gaslighting and Mm -hmm. and gaslighting is something that comes up in my poem that I spoke about to heal and work through um the trauma. And when you say that, you know, don't blame yourself for not having done it sooner. It's also, I want to recognize, because I say this to myself, um, each day is a new challenge. Each day, Mm -hmm. something in my day might trigger a flashback, or even now, I realized I was having panic attacks after this, but I thought I was just like having a panic attack. But now I realized that the panic attack was stemming from just sexual assaults that had happened mm-hmm. to me. And, you know, I'll share I was assaulted as a first grader um, mm-hmm. by a young girl. Um, and that's hard to process as a child. So I'm not going to speak too much to it because it's, you know, um, not that it's not important because it is, but um, you know, I think I'm gonna stay more in terms of the, what it's been like being a survivor in my PhD program and something having happened to me as um, you're already in such a precarious position as a PhD student, whereas just a student in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was living by myself. I had just finished all my courses. So my third year of my program, it's the fall. I've just broken up with my boyfriend um, and I had met a man in his late 20s maybe. um, And we were casually seeing each other and um, I had gone over his house a few times Um, There was a few times where kind of what you've described, not to the extent of being in a verbally abusive relationship, but he would start to get very aggressive. And at first I excused it, like, well, maybe I just misread this. Um, But then, you know, one time he started to talk about how good of a fighter he is and how He knows how to use a knife and that really troubled me and um now looking back I can piece together this more linear in a linear fashion when it was actually happening it's this out of body experience of not even just the moment of the assault but of the oh these were signs of he's trying to abuse me. He's trying to put me in a position of inferiority and I didn't even realize because I had taken him to be a ethical person and, you know, and was going to be respectful. So I was actually preparing for oral exams during this whole time, which is a really intense experience. I would say it's probably up there with like just finishing your dissertation. Um, but it's like a very compressed intense period um, where at least with your dissertation, you can extend some time and there's some availability to find support to like, you know, finish the dissertation. With your exam, you really do have to just get through that hurdle to even get to your dissertation. Um, And I had been really enjoying all the reading and, um, you know, had really wonderful relationship with who's now my dissertation director. Um, Susan, well, Dr. Susan Shekel, um, who was so helpful for preparing for the exam. And I actually just recently told, um, Susan, uh, that I was assaulted right before the oral exam process. And she's, you know, of course didn't know and expressed immense sympathy and um, I said I wasn't telling anyone. I mean, it wasn't until the pandemic began that I actually wrote this poem um, in the summer. I think it was maybe May and I posted it on Facebook and it was a way for me to heal or just even piece together how I was still thinking about this. And. Uh, The most difficult part for me still is that I live in the town where this happened and the house is only a mile from me. And that to me is going to be one of the hardest parts of continuing every day with this narrative and with the experience, because I still think, what happens if I ever run into this man? Like I haven't seen him. I saw him once after it happened. And that was, the amount of my body shaking internally was so intense. And um, I actually, well, I'll read the poem soon, Mary. So, you know, you can also hear and everyone else who's listening, but um, I'm including it too, for those who need to read it or those who wanna read it, um, or if you wanna see it right now. I forgot his name after the experience um, not right away. I would say about a month later, I just didn't even remember his name and I didn't want to know his name. So it wasn't like I just had amnesia. I just was so insistent. I don't want to remember this abuser and assaulter. Um However, I've recently remembered his name this week. Um, and I think it might just also be that I finally... I'm in a headspace that has worked through what was happening. So I actually don't see it as a negative. I actually think that that's a good sign of maybe me starting to understand how this has been impacting me, why I've been having headaches that I couldn't understand why I was having headaches. I mean, we're also in a pandemic um, which has brought a lot to light, but I was getting headaches once in a while and then would realize it's usually when I was thinking about this assault, like, oh, okay, something's happening here psychologically. Um, And I was doing a lot of intensive hot yoga to the point where like sometimes after this had happened, I would like start doing yoga. I would do like three hours of yoga every day or just intense, intense exercise. To uh, Now I look back and I see, oh, Andrew, you were trying to just not have time to think about this. You were distracting yourself. But then I passed my oral exams. I finished a dissertation prospectus. I continued to do a conference every year. And I ended up organizing a Whitman symposium at the university two years after this happened. Um, maybe three years, but still. Uh, And I even like that summer after this happened, I went to Paris for a week for Whitman um, scholarship. So I like look back and I realize I don't even know how I did that. Like, I don't know how I, it was almost this fight or flight. Like you just need to keep going and going because the university and the department demands this of you, Andrew. Like you can't show the truth. Like, I really didn't feel like I could be honest because someone else would get that opportunity, you know? And Mm -hmm. we've talked about competition and that your cohort usually should not see itself itself in competition. Adam and I have a very different um, experience with that. Um, I don't really keep in touch with anyone in my cohort. Not that I haven't tried, I have. Um, And I really respect uh, everyone in my cohort, I do um, most of them don't live near the university. Most of them, some are married. Actually, I would say two thirds are married. Um, some have children. Um, so I have reached out to a few and we do show solidarity with each other. So there is a good support, but it wasn't that support where we could have like a writing group. We really were never all together. So it's a That's why this virtual writing group feels, it's the next step for me. It was like, oh, I needed this. I didn't know how much I needed that. Um, And the therapy feels the same way. And then I'm sharing with everyone here, um, there was um, a queer studies conference in 2015 and I actually met a very, very amazing, um, there's so many kind words. I just have for his work he does. Um, His name is Fernando. I'm actually including um, all these resources that he gave to me. Um, So I wanna make sure I just get his name right. Uh, Fernando uh, Zwaifak Lopez Jr. So thank you, Fernando. Um, He helps run San Diego Pride. He's actually actually the executive director. And he shared with us all an essay of his he wrote when he was sadly, drugged and then raped after a nightclub experience um, in San Diego. So, you know, I appreciate that vulnerability to share your narrative. And I also included other narratives of male sexual assault survivors. So like I can speak as a male sexual assault survivor and it is different than being a female sexual assault survivor. I've had these conversations with Erica Um, I've had these conversations with many, with others, and I think the difference too is that when I, even when this happened, my first thought was, well, I can kind of (laughs)
2: laugh
1: about it because what else am I going to do, that I left my sweatshirt in that house, which Mm. I was not happy about because I liked that sweatshirt. And I got the sweatshirt back, which I don't know why I went back for a sweatshirt. But
2: Mm.
1: again, I didn't know what had, I I didn't know how, I knew knew my world had broken. I don't think I knew how immense the trauma was because you don't, I mean, your body's not ready to handle all that. Um, And I said, I'm not going to call the police here. I live on Long Island. I live in a very like bro-y culture. Um, The police here, I've seen them and I don't think they'll believe me. Not even do I think they're not gonna believe me. I think they're gonna blame me. Um, And I was not ready to deal with that. Maybe they would have really accepted my truth. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, there are some very, very, There are some police departments that are very well versed in sexual assault, but that had not been the case that I've heard about Long Island. Um, Mm -hmm. I also had some skepticism about the university, like even going to the hospital. Um, Again, I could have. So I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that I couldn't have because I could have done a rape test um, and have reported it and Like that's where I said, I can't think back about what if I had done that? Because I'm here right now, the Andrew in front of you and the Andrew you're hearing. Um, But right now I have found through Fernando's help um, a survivor, LGBTQ survivor support group which I'm going to be starting soon. And I am really, really eager because I need That's amazing. Them. Yeah. And it's very specific. And I think, I wanna feel that I'm supported by other LGBTQ survivors, um, mm-hmm. just to feel that I'm in a safe environment. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I'll share the poem and that might open up a lens and we can just debrief. Um, but it does feel good to say this because you know, when I had had all my conversations with those in the department, I think everyone would probably say, I can't mind read. That would be wonderful if I could mind read from <laughs> those in the department, what they're all thinking. <laughs> that could help me with my dissertation. Um, but I don't think they would ever say, oh yeah, we could tell Andrew was going through trauma. Like I, I've actually heard the opposite. Like, oh, you seemed fine. And even in my yoga studio, I think they were just like, oh, he's dedicated to these classes, you know? Mm -hmm. And, well, you, I don't think I knew either what I was Mm -hmm. going through, which is what I'm discovering now that, oh, I was going, I still am going through recovery, which, Mm you know, I wouldn't have wanted to define myself as being affected, even like a year ago, I was still probably in denial of being affected by this. Um, Okay, so here's the poem. Going to say that it is, um, there's a content warning, definitely. I mean, this whole conversation has been There's that's why Adam and I did a content warning for both of these discussions. But you know, now that I'm reading a poem, it is, um, it might affect you with the explicit nature. So I just want to let everyone know that I don't remember his name. Why, you may ask. A shutdown of that part of my brain that knows if I conjure up who he is by name. A wave of trauma will sweep over me, a protective feature. Wasn't it enough that I thought I wouldn't be able to escape alive from his house? One thought that continues to repeat in my mind is do what he says to get out before he harms you even further. The event. A man you had been with before and this was the fifth time you had visited him. The timeline of that night. Blurry. He joked about using physical violence when he got mad and put a knife on someone who questioned him. I should have left then. The no I screamed was loud. I know it was. Physical force that I used to get him off of me after he refused to listen to my no after no. Then the gaslighting deflective technique was used on me. I did this to you because A, you teased me so how could I resist? B, why did you come here tonight if it wasn't to do this? C, how could I help myself when you look the way you do? All of these questions screamed at me as I ran out the door. It's been three and a half years I know I had to write this down to continue to survive and thrive. In solidarity for those who understand and have lived through assault. Wow. That's the first time I read that. aloud.
2: This is beautiful. Thank you. Truly.
1: But like, even when I read that aloud, I still do think that's right. He did threaten a knife on you and you almost did not make it out there alive. Like I really did think I was going to die. Um, And I started to beg and plead with him for whatever I could do just to leave that place. Um, Yeah, so it's intense. Um, I think he's moved away, which is good for (laughs) my healing. Mm -hmm. It's like, my first instinct is now to laugh just because I think that intense emotion is something I still don't know just how to, it's why I wrote the poem because the poem does explain more than I could just verbalize. It's, you know, knowing that I screamed no at least five times for him to get off of me and he held my mouth shut. I was able to get him off of me eventually, but that's when he then started to use this gaslighting technique of, well, why else are you here? You know what I wanted to do to you sexually. Like, you know, didn't say it in that kind of way. It was very scary. Mm -hmm. Um, And you start to make concessions. And this isn't something that I'm coming up with. This is something that many assault survivors have are concessions and fight or flight. And I said, Andrew, I wanna continue to read. I wanna continue to see my friends at the university. I need to see my parents. I'm like, the first person I caught after this was my ex-boyfriend in the car actually. Mm. And I said, this just happened to me and I don't know what to do. And you know, I have to say he was so supportive. I was there to listen and helped me through. What right after was almost feeling like you're, not only was I on the edge of a cliff, I was about to hit the rocks beneath me and I could feel Mm -hmm. it. Like I could feel this, these moments after like are going to be what defines me. And I wanted to be defined by you reached out to someone and you're trying to process it. Like, just process it. Don't don't be quiet about it to yourself because then it's going to, it'll affect you later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still affecting me, but I didn't know how it might affect me if I try to hide it.
2: Um, Absolutely.
1: So yeah, well, thank you for listening. Um, and yeah, that... I, I've even recently started to look through photos of just what 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 was it like from before that happened and what was it like after it happened? And is there a noticeable difference? And I will say there was like a lighter Andro, like just lighter with, lighter in terms of my facial expressions and feeling um, this enjoyment about even, even being able to read. I think the main difference I can even see right now is being able to read and not feel distracted. Mm. Like just read and be okay in the quiet and the silence. Mm-hmm. I really don't like silent noise right now. For I a don't long either. time, I haven't like silent noise. Um, I and- mean, in
0: general, I've never liked it. I don't know why but it's funny because like I really like the early hours of the morning when no one's awake and I mean like I have all the stimuli that I need to put on whether it's like I need to put a tv show on while I'm doing some certain work but like I and I don't know maybe if it had anything to do with like my background as a dancer like just always having something like music playing while I was being creative I don't know if that has anything to do with it but I like the the stillness of those early hours and there's a like I don't find it eerie I find it peaceful. peaceful.
1: Yes, it is. And you no, know, I'm I'm the same way, but and I have to say with the silence I do once in a while I do I'll be I'll be okay, but I do love my music playlist and mm-hmm. podcasts. Like there's things now that I know how to cope. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what it is when I recognize this is what I use to cope and this is what I need. Um, But also I was talking about what had happened to me recently to Adam and I said, Adam, this happened during the awful allegations around the 45th president. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: like this happened literally during that election. And I didn't yeah. even piece yeah. together how that, like, I wasn't able to start to process because it was being brought up everywhere. And like this week too, when we're recording this, it's March 6th, just for everyone, because it'll come out later. Um, mm-hmm. And around the sexual harassment around Cuomo and around... Mm-hmm. Um, um, just so many abusive men. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm not trying to insert politics here, but I, anytime I just hear these allegations, which, yes, they need to be investigated, and yes, we should make sure, you know, they get fully uh, processed, but I think just when I hear survivors come out with their narrative, I just realized how vulnerable a position that is. And it was the same way when Mm -hmm. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was coming forward, how immensely psychologically that took a toll on all of us who are survivors. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of victim blaming recently from people who I thought I could trust on social media. And I'm like, I thought Mm -hmm. you were my friends. This is how you really feel about victim
0: yeah i don't like the time with
1: comes, but I've survived, mm-hmm.
2: i
0: survived i'm sorry
1: no
2: i was just sorry. gonna
0: say like at the time with like with 45 when he was coming up and all the allegations were coming out against him and just like it was disturbing to hear from my own fa- like extended family members that oh well they're just doing this to make money why they would they should have came out sooner and it's like to, i was just like are, are you kidding me this is one of the most traumatic experiences that could have ever occurred in their lives and you have the gall to say when they should and should not come out with their story like how how dare you try to tell a victim when they can and cannot come out
1: it's not on your stories it's It's not on it's uh, infuriating it's not on someone Uh, exactly I've voiced that a lot recently which is it's not on someone else to decide the terms that a survivor steps forward. Mm -hmm. That is the survivor's decision. And if they don't want to step forward, that is their decision too. Um, And if they confide in you and you break that confidence, that is also going against their decision. Um, So I also recently too, not only brought this up, confided in my director, which is a very vulnerable position and
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I got all the support I needed. So, you know, she listened and that's all I need is just whether it be my director to listen and just say, I hear you and I'm sorry. And we're going to work, you know, we're going to go forward and work through this Um, and not work through it, you know, therapeutically. That's why I have a therapist, but like work forward. I mean, when I say go forward, it may come up again in terms of how it's affecting me. And like, just be aware that I am working through this now psychologically. Um, But also my parents and I have had a lot of conversations but especially recently because I said, I'm going to be recording this. It's gonna be out there as on the podcast, um, preserved so to speak, um, which Hopefully, anyone listening, if you are a survivor, I hear you. I feel you. I feel in solidarity with you. I, um, you know, am here if you need to reach out to me. Um, and if you're not a survivor, I can speak for myself. But I just want you to listen and just absorb, hear that we need to do better. Like. It's not about finding an answer. I had this discussion with my parents. Like, I know they want to find an answer and just have this erased from my memory, but I wish, the, you know, I wish there was some kind of like men in black type of process where that could happen, but there isn't. And it's a part of who I am, but it doesn't, it's, it's part of my research too. I'm starting to realize that, oh, I'm actually really creating scholarship around. Justice around restorative justice, around queer justice, around now how racial justice plays a part of that. And you know, that um, these intersections are really happening in my own work, and I'm going to let them happen because I know that's just how I'm healing. Um, and it's saying something new to even how I process bodies in Whitman. Like it's now through this trauma lens, which Is something new. Um, So, yeah, just please listen, is what I would advocate. And not to Mary is listening, and we've been (laughs) absorbing, but out there, like if you're in an administrative position, please just know that your students and maybe even you yourself, you know, that this does impact graduate students directly. And there are a lot of grad students who we started to form a community which has been really empowering on Twitter. Um, a graduate student friend, well, now is a doctor. Um, so I'm going to give the credit to that student who has come forward. Um, I'm going to see if I can get that, um, see, I said student. If I can get that doctor, um, doctor um, of sociology's doctor, of sociology's permission first to share the story um, Mm -hmm. that they have been so um, brave and vulnerable to share. And even as said, all they're looking for, for justice is just for the department to recognize that yes, that this did happen to this student. When when I use student because they were a student when this happened. And for me, it wasn't in the department. It wasn't at the university, but you know, I'm not asking my department to, you know, do a, there is no mea culpa that the department is in need of doing. I think it's just recognizing that, well, Andrew has come forward now. Andrew is sharing that this could happen. This can happen any at any stage of your life, but what does this do when you are already in a precarious position as a PhD student? Okay. And I would love to eventually hopefully we have more conversations and hopefully eventually this can happen at the university. I mean, that would be my goal that there can be more of these honest and very survivor building opportunities because I am sure that there are those who I know at the university and I just don't know their narratives and they might not be in the space yet. And that that is okay, like know that you might not be able to process that yet, but when you are ready to process that, there is a support group, there is a community that is ready to virtually embrace you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I am ready. like and I. As am, far
0: as like you said yeah. about the school and everything, like the administration's in school, um, I think it's just important that, like you said, that not, not only that they need to listen, but that they need to recognize that just because someone isn't being physically abused and you can't see the actual abuse on them physically, it's not that it's not happening up here Mm
2: -hmm. in the
0: headspace. And like you said, when you're in such an intense situation of grad school, I mean, just with the workload and everything that you're trying to do and accomplish for your future goals and career goals, you know, it really, you know, effects and takes a toll on how you're presenting your work, how you're doing your work, how you're creating your schedule to get your work done. And I think it's important that, like you said, the administration, uh, not only to listen, but if there could be a way where maybe they could look out for that in some way.
1: And why, as an instructor myself, I'm very, very, because of my experience, like, As a queer man, but now also as a sexual assault survivor, when I introduce very, very difficult conversations, Um, this has happened when I've taught um, queer theory around um, violence or queer theory around um, even just. Fetishism or racialized violence, especially racialized violence. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I did teach *The Color Purple*, and that is a very heavy text. Um, or when I taught a film class, uh, it comes up a lot, especially in the visual um, mm-hmm. media. That I think because I'm I'm informed from my own view, I do a lot of content warning. I introduce the material before showing it like I make sure we have a discussion about what we're about to witness and just you know what how it might affect you as a viewer right but also we are readers too in we are readers and readers have different responses we have psychologically different responses we have different embodied embodied personas just how we orient ourselves, or we, I mean, we're not always aware of how we're orienting ourselves, but phys- philosophically how we're oriented, um, is going to affect Mary differently than it affects me. And But if you as an instructor can just be aware that I have to, like Bell Hooks says in teaching to transgress, which the writing group has heard me talk a lot about because I've been adding it to my revisions for my article, <laughs> but it is such a good text. And Bell Hooks talks about the vulnerable instructor And by vulnerable, it's not that you're going to be ready to feel traumatized by your students, no, no. Like not vulnerable that you should be in danger as an instructor, but vulnerable that you start to open up a little about what you're comfortable sharing with with your students. I mean, my students know that I am a queer man. I actually haven't talked to them openly about being an assault survivor I'm not sure about that yet. That's something I'm not ready to discuss with my students yet. And I don't know if if I will, but maybe that's a discussion I'll have eventually with others in my department. I'd be curious about their thoughts. So there we go. There's an open invitation. Um, even with my therapist, that could be a really interesting question. Um, especially if I'm teaching material around assault. Um, like mm-hmm. if I taught promising young women, should be a very heavy film to teach, um, but I think would be an important conversation, but it's heavy. Um, yeah, how to navigate that. Um, and there is no answer. I think that's what it is. There's no one answer. There's going to be different answers depending on who you're trying to um who you're trying to inquire information from, but also just the communities you're in. But um, open listening is my real uh, message. And also victim blaming and just questioning someone's assault narrative does a lot of psychological harm. And you might not Mm -hmm. think it is. You might think you're just, doing journalistic reporting, but no, no. Let the journalists, you know, reveal the stories. You're not a journalist, so please don't, especially on social media, there are actual people behind these screens and you are going to be impacting survivors. Um, I'm one who has been impacted by messages I've seen, um, just questioning. Like Mary said, why did you? Why did they come forward? Like, why should I believe them? Like you have friends who've gone through this and your questioning is impacting your friends psyche. And they might not be telling you that. And the reason I haven't confronted a lot of the people who I've seen doing this is I respect them. I know that they don't wanna cause harm psychologically and also the energy it requires to reach out to each of those people and not feel gaslit by them mm. and not be attacked by them personally, about my own about my own assault. Like, I don't want to be traumatized by them. That's. Right. you know, But if you do think that you might have been victim blaming, um, it's never too late to just say, and this isn't to me directly. So this isn't that people have to reach out to me. This isn't about me. Um, Cause I know this has happened to many people, many survivors. It's never too late to just say, I don't know, I don't know how to fully process someone's assault, but I am willing, but I know that I want to listen and I'm going to become a better ally mm-hmm. and As for resources, right, I think that's just as writers as teachers, we always want sources. So it's never, it's not a weakness to say I just need resources Does someone have resources to help me to help inform my views. Because trust me, people will send you resources. Um, We Mm -hmm. have sources here, feel free to use our resources. um, And I just want to thank you, Mary, for I really, I know it was intense, but I do feel that this helped me just process what happened, and I'm moving over the hill. I can actually see myself now, like, descending the Grand Canyon and eventually cuddling up to the fire at one of the campgrounds and having some s'mores, so for that, I thank you.
0: Absolutely. And thank you for having me.
1: Thank you. Okay, well, bye, everyone. And our next, um, our next uh, chat is actually going to be um, the four of us coming back together to just debrief with all of you. So, bye, everyone. <laughs> Okay, Adam, so we have voiced and concluded our two acts of what I know has been a really intense conversation, not just for this group here, but I'm sure the listeners too, we're discussing this now, but you probably have listened to a few songs of ours that we've chosen to just help you process and not... Yeah, um, it is, it it. is go
2: ahead
3: it is whiplash hanging out with you Andrew because it'll be we'll, we'll be having these like massively intense discussions about life and trauma and philosophy and then and then you'll turn on the like poppiest music and I'll be like I just want to <laughs> just want to listen to Schubert
1: is that such a crime <laughs> it's not it's not such a crime no but I'll I'll get one I'll get my choice for act two and you can get your choice for act one. So we, we, oh we do compromise together. This is a we good, com- lesson. Yeah. Um, we so live in a society. What we're gonna, no, do but- we, what Adam and I wanna do is just ask Erica and Mary to weigh in and just, um, we're gonna call this our debriefing conclusion. Yeah, I like that. So Erica, since you were in the first part um, how are you checking in with us now?
4: So I will be a hundred percent honest and say I'm not okay. okay. Um, because there's no point in my trying to pretend that I am, or you know, convince all of you that I am, because you guys can see me on the Zoom screen anyway. Uh, I'm not okay. Again. Oh, you think
3: we we're gonna call you out though?
4: I didn't say that, but I think it's no point really powerful it.
3: that you're
1: honest. Yeah, it really um, is,
3: though.
4: Thank
1: you okay Mary hurry so, you- oh sorry go ahead Eric uh,
4: so I and I know so I'm gonna spend a lot of time in the next couple days with self-care and yeah you know doing what I need to do to get back to symbiosis mm-hmm.
1: And you know that each day you might be checking in differently and I think that's a really important process and I know that either tonight or tomorrow I'm going to be in a bubble bath with a nice novel so that's my self-care and I just actually made cookies during a break we took so that was another form Um, as I did jam to disco but (laughs) I will survive is my Uh, self-care.
4: I mean it's I'm grateful too that we you know that we do have our group that writes together because I know tomorrow morning I'll get up and I'll you know, I'll jump in, and even if I'm not okay, I'll be making contact with people so that I can't, I can't fall into a bad pattern myself and and do too much isolating. Oh,
1: that's
4: important. Um, and that's a really important thing for me is to not let myself use isolation as a way of avoidance. So I'm not wow. okay, but I'll get there, and I'll keep checking in with you. I'm I i am
3: Thank Actually, you. I'm really proud of you for saying that because I, I found mm-hmm. the same sort of power at an at important juncture in my life. Um, there was one summer where I, uh, people would ask me, "How are you doing?" just because that's, that's the greeting in this country.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and I, I found that I, w- I found that I couldn't answer fine. I literally couldn't bring my mouth to form the words. Mm-hmm. So what I did instead was I would say, would you like the long version or the short version? Mm. Yeah. And that usually mm. ended the conversation because like I said, it's just a pleasantry. Nobody was actually asking how I was doing, which is another problem.
1: But don't you think that's changing mm-hmm. now during the pandemic? Cause I've seen it changing.
3: I it's- mean, I think it's changing as we choose the people we hang out with. Well, that is- if, mm-hmm. if Andrew or Eric or Mary says, how are you doing? And I say, I'm feeling like shit. Then they're they're not going to say oh well here's your coffee or here's here's my here's my subway stop or whatever they're gonna we're gonna get I'm into not going to run
1: away from you
3: exactly well so it's changing as you choose your well, community
1: and I think even a circumstance of this conversation that the four of us weren't in the headspace to probably even have this conversation a few years ago. Maybe, or, even maybe we were, ago. but I, I don't, I know I wasn't ready to share this kind of narrative a no. few weeks ago. Um, okay, well, Mary, how are you checking in with us?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way that you do about, like, sharing your narrative. Like, honestly, I mean, the people that I knew and were close to me knew what was happening with that relationship when it was happening, and I never thought that I would be opening up about it or really wanting to talk about it ever again, just because some of it was very traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, in this moment, I feel OK, as I'm not looking at anyone and crocheting because <laughs> mm-hmm. defense mechanism. Um, but I can feel, you know, I'm, I'm a little shaken, but <laughs> I, I've worked through it before. I know I can do it again. Um, luckily with the work I'm writing on I think will give me an outlet to express some of those emotions and get it out but yes you know I, it's more yeah. of just the initial like oh I really just yeah. opened up about all that okay yeah, I so
1: many deep breaths during our break and started to cry and was just like wow I let this out like I needed to let that out
2: mm-hmm. like I was just
1: holding my breath about it and could just feel the wave crashing, like in such a positive way. But also I feel kind of fragmentary in a way just even this narrative is fragmentary, but I feel that I'm piecing it together, even just sharing my poem felt healing. I mean, the poem's title is, how to heal is the second title Um, after taking back my voice. And I do think I'm healing um i know i am um but yeah vulnerability i would say right now my emotion is i feel vulnerable and it's not scary but it's i was even saying to the group here i feel vulnerable to my department i feel vulnerable to those who know me very well and i really don't want to go there, but my mind is going to what happens if they judge you now what happens if the relationship changes with people, but I realized that I needed to be honest and mm-hmm. I know that the people. That so many do care about hearing my narrative and they're going to be reaching out to me and the support is there, I think it's just mm-hmm. right i'm sure we all feel vulnerable right now just sharing all of I that say so. Mm-hmm. Um, okay well Adam how are you.
3: So
4: checking in. Yeah.
3: A lot of a lot of what I talked about today was really old news, yeah. which is good. Um I feel good about the fact that it didn't it doesn't feel like the same person.
2: Hmm.
3: Right? Or the same same version of the person
2: mm-hmm.
3: who experienced all of that other stuff, who who literally could not reach out to other people. Partly for fear of being judged, partly for, partly just because that's the way the disease works, right there there are certain things that happen to a person that limit their ability to heal from that thing. Yeah. right And you, you get these like downward spirals of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the symptoms of depression is you you have trouble getting help for, the symptoms and for the root causes and for everything but and that doesn't feel like me anymore I feel I'm, I'm a much more open person I'm a much I'm a much louder person when it comes to getting me the help that I need just to just to live mm. um, I did feel very sensitive to what was going on around me mm. there's a lot more of that and I, I mean I'm, I'm glad you read what you read Andrew because it was it was new to me even though I've read it before it was it 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 felt like something completely different hearing you read it hearing you pace out the lines and I don't know breathe life into them and so on so I appreciate that because that was a risk that you took of sorts, like you said, um, letting your letting your letting parts of you hmm. yeah. go around unarmored that you're not used to doing.
1: That's a good way to explain how I feel. Yeah, it, <sighs> that's the vulnerability.
3: Yeah, and uh, and as to just as to the whole situation, there's a lot. <sighs> I mean, one of the things that I that I would feel remiss if if we didn't. Mention is that we live in we live in this space in between positive and negative. I think. I mean, part part of why you you would spend five to ten years of your life get uh, getting a PhD, and part of why you would you would devote yourself to. A profession is this feeling of—I
1: don't know. Um, I was going to say it's because I know for me, what I do at the university fulfills so much of my passion, and I—I right. I feel so content in the classroom and. St- Just getting, like Mary said, that creative processing feelings and emotions that you're not able to always verbalize, but maybe it can come through writing. Maybe it comes in when I close read a poem or when I talk about queer literature. Like it can manifest itself in even when I analyze grief and into the woods. That has really helped just hearing how students respond to that and even just how I respond to it because it's always... I feel I'm always learning. I really am. I, I never, I don't feel static in this, in academia.
4: And this mm-hmm. word that I was going to use also, though, which, you know, is interesting that you and I, who come from very different fields and very different perspectives on the whole thing, would both choose because for me, it's about, using that passion to create change and to sort of move things in a direction where things are better,
2: yeah.
4: not just for me, but you know, cause it's a lot of the time it's not about me, but better for somebody, better for students, better for you, better for whoever you know, whoever it is that I'm working with, um, where, you know, people have that that ability to, you know, that empowerment, that ability to be their own superhero sometimes. Yeah, well,
1: um, you shared with me a lot of um, their thoughts about how I was even teaching during the pandemic virtually and the consistent word that was used was respecting my vulnerability as an instructor and that really meant a lot because being so openly queer as an instructor is a risk that you take because you know i'm putting myself out on that line i mean it's a very chorus line type of analogy but it's true
3: like you really are I actually had the same reference really, in
1: mind you really are I was listening to it today too. Oh, there we go. (laughs) But you really are taking a risk. And to see that my students are, I see their journey and just, and other like faculty members and my relationship with them and that with the grad students, with the writing group, with other scholars that it does, I'm not, I can't go back from being so honest. And for that, I'm grateful. Like for that, I'm grateful that how I see the society differently, say, just from my own lived experiences, I would never take away what I bring to the table. Mm. Um, yeah. And you know maybe I can't retrace what it was like before the assault, but I know that I'm proud of who I am today. Yeah,
0: that's important. I think that's a huge part of healing as well is finding your self worth again and feeling good about yourself. And I know I said it before in our section, but like having confidence in yourself
4: mm-hmm. is I've very yes is how i put it but yeah um, I like and it. i love learning from you and learning with you i mean it's you know it is always such a joy to collaborate with you and and to to talk about your work and just to to like get to dig into it together sometimes and you know and and so you know we've, we've really kind of been able to connect
1: mm-hmm.
4: that way too
1: as a writing group cause I really want listeners to know this. I, the last few weeks, everyone around me I've noticed has been making such turning the corner or coming to self knowledge. Like there's been such a powerful enlightening spark going on and I don't know what the causes of that, but all I know is it's really amazing to tune into, oh, we're all really learning right now at an accelerated rate. And it's okay that we don't have these answers and we're gonna just try to check in um, with each other. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see where the next few weeks take us all. And I think it's good we end on optimism because um you know it's like i'm making we're we're all making our way back up the roller coaster hill but i kind of just want to stay at the top uh (laughs) where we're we're just stuck but like stuck in a very positive way that's literally not how roller coasters work
4: well you can excitement if we always stay there We could all just be
1: stuck and watching the sunset. You know, it's a very, maybe someone brought, Mary brought a picnic on the roller coaster. So we're (laughs) eating some cheese, you never know.
4: Hey Andrew, if you get me, you know, if we get stuck at the top, you're never going to get me to claim the title poet.
1: (laughs) Well, on that note, I I wish everyone out there um, that however you're processing what you currently listen to, that it speaks to you, either you learn something new, maybe you really have a lot of questions. Um, We have a lot of resources, so hopefully you can use them. You could email um, those of us who, um, I know I'm gonna leave my email, I think, well, You know, each of us will do it at our own uh, discretion, but you could reach out to any of us who leave an email, um, follow us on Twitter and you can reach out to us that way. Yeah. Like when you say it, Adam, can you say
3: it? Oh my goodness. Um, Well, I was gonna say, you can like, um, you can send us messages through the podcast and you can send us messages on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room and through our Facebook group, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, mm-hmm.
1: um, and, they can be- and
3: you can you can you can you can mark them. Like you can say, I want um, to I want to say something to Erica or I want to say something to Mary. Both of them are on Twitter. If you guys would like to plug yourselves for a moment.
1: Oh yeah. So how can they follow you?
0: Ah, uh, sure on twitter and instagram i am at pips d-i-p-i-p-s um that's my personal one then there's also like my podcast but i don't know that i should plug yeah, that oh, oh, it. okay i'm plugging in here okay <laughs> or um there's also at the nanny reviews on twitter and instagram and on facebook it is the nanny reviews with mary DePipi.
1: nice okay and erica how can they follow you
4: um the best place to follow me is probably on twitter uh and my twitter uh is
1: oh yeah say it say it okay. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's what the mama saw and it's all one word
1: i love it um
4: love it. you can find me there
3: every time um, i get that fucking song stuck in my head
4: <laughs> 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 well then i did my job
3: good good well It's a good song. i just like to have a choice in the
1: matter, please. Well, we're sending everyone a (laughs) virtual hug. Um, May you all find the support you need. Stay safe and healthy. Um, We're getting through this together. Um, And there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That it is there. It is there. Okay. well, bye, everyone. And Adam, see
2: you this spring. Yeah. Mm-hmm.